to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Start off with a question again, as I often do. So we can think about the theme of the message. How many of you like to be right? Those of you that didn't raise your hand, you're lying, you're just too lazy, whatever. I want to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you think you're always right? Definitely don't point if you're married to somebody who thinks they're always right. Okay. How many of you have trouble admitting when you're wrong? It's like to raise your hand, you'd have to actually admit you're wrong, so I'm going to raise my hand. <laughs> Heard the story of a couple that was having one of those discussions. Doesn't matter the topic, but they were having one of those discussions, and the wife said to her husband, you never admit that you're wrong. And he shot right back and says, well, you'll never admit that I'm right. So she paused for a minute, and she says, you know what, we've got to work on this. I'll tell you what, if you'll make an effort, and at least try to admit when you're wrong, then I'll try to admit when you're right. It's okay, we'll try to do that. So about a week later, they were having another discussion. And he's just going on and on. He just stopped. He says, you know what? I'm wrong. She turned to him with a big smile and said, you're right. (laughs) Anyway, why do we struggle to admit when we're not right, when we're wrong? I think it's something that's built inside of us, even if it's not a big deal. We know sometimes there are big deals that we can be wrong about, and I think that there's something associated with being wrong that brings shame, that makes us feel like we're a failure, that people will look down on us. And there's, I think there's a spiritual component to that. Because there are times that we are wrong. And a thought, an idea, a decision, something we did, that can cause a lot of problems. And it does mean that there's a failure, and it can bring shame. But in our spirit, in our mind, whatever, we often associate that with every time we are accused or said to be wrong. And and this isn't the focus of my message, but let me just say that it's a great sign of maturity and humility when a person can admit that they're wrong. Something we need to work on. We'll we'll do a different sermon on that. Today we're going to wrap up the sermon series I began back about six weeks ago. There are a couple of other messages in between with special guests, but this is the fourth message, and that sermon series is Seek First. Seek First. The idea of seek is what are you going to passionately pursue. The idea of first is what's most important. And so we've been talking about those things that are most important to passionately pursue. And we all have a list of the things that we pursue. All we have a list of the things that are important to us. We invest our time and our money in. That's the two greatest determinations of what's really important to you is what do you spend your time and money on. But we've been trying to look at it from the perspective of God's word. And our key verse for this whole series has been Matthew 6, verse 33, where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness 
and all these things will be added to you. That concludes a discussion he had about how people spend all their lives seeking to have their basic needs met, which was true of his culture. In our culture, we don't spend all of our lives seeking to have our basic needs met. It's part of it, but we're used to our basic needs being met. But yet, above that, what we want, what we desire, oftentimes either ignoring God or kind of putting him in the background. And what God is trying to say through Jesus' words here is that, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, if, if you have a relationship with me, if you will seek me first, my kingdom, my righteousness, I'll take care of all the stuff you need. And that's the main point. And so we've been talking about this idea of seeking first. And the first message is, what will you seek first? Just to kind of get our minds on, what am I seeking first, you know? What, what is important to me? What should I be seeking first? And then we talked about how we need to seek God first. You know, Jesus said seek his kingdom and his righteousness, but if we do that without actually developing and seeking to have a great relationship with God, it all becomes hypocrisy. So we need to seek God first. And then last week we talked about seeking God's kingdom first. And so today we come to the last part, and that is seek God's righteousness first. Seek God's righteousness first. It's interesting because this passage that we're looking at is from the Sermon on the Mount. And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something very similar, but using different words. At the very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, he gave what's known as the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are, and he gave this whole list of characteristics, character traits, He says, the people that are blessed by God, and and it's a great study, people that are willing to admit, actually it's in there, that are willing to admit that they're wrong. You know, people that are willing to be humble, people that are willing to come to God for forgiveness, people that mourn over their sin, people that, you know, all that kind of stuff. But one of them we find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He uses this phrase, hunger and thirst, and the words that are used there are are really intense longing. You are hungry and you're thirsty, but not because you just feel like a little snack, got a little bit of a nagging, uh, you know, nagging something there. But this is somebody who I've not had anything to eat for a long time. I've not had enough to drink, and I am desperate. And he says, blessed are the people who feel that way about righteousness. They'll be satisfied. But what is this righteousness? What is righteousness? A lot of different definitions, but I put it down this way. Righteousness is being right, or doing right, or that which is right. Okay? But then we get into another problem, especially today in our culture, and to be honest with you, with just human nature. Whose definition of right? Right? You know, in our world... It's even stronger now, but it's always kind of been there. There's this idea of what's right for you may not be right for me. But what's right for me is right for me. So that's all that I need to be concerned about. It's all kind of relative. There is no true right and wrong, which doesn't even make sense logically in so many areas of life. But we're talking about ethically. I mean, most people can admit, well, okay, yeah, 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know, 2 plus 4 doesn't equal 5, no matter how badly you want to believe that. But in the area of morals and ethics and what is right in behavior and all that kind of stuff, there's this vagueness. And 
this idea that you don't need to put your values or what you think is right on somebody else. You just need to accept that they believe something else is right. And this idea of tolerance, although I find it very interesting that everybody's supposed to be tolerant of everybody else, except for people who take a stand for what's godly, for what God wants to do. And we see this story all through Scripture. Isn't that how the problems in the world began? Isn't that how sin came into the picture? Because God had told Adam and Eve what was right and what was wrong and what to do and what not to do. And he actually only had one thing he told them not to do. And the enemy basically came and said, hey, is that really true? I think this is right for you. And Eve came to the conclusion, this is right for me. It looks good. I think it'll taste good. I think it'll be great. So God says it's wrong, but I think it's right. And so she decided to do what was right in her own eyes. And she offered to Adam, and he did the same thing. I think we see this theme really amplified in the story of God's people. As God's people grew from the family of Abraham into the nation of Israel, they went into slavery, or they went to Egypt, where they were eventually enslaved over 400 years. They cried out to God, and God delivered them. And he says, I'm going to take you into the promised land. He said, we're going to have a relationship. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'll take care of you. I will bless you. Here's what's right. This is the way you need to live. And when they finally went into the promised land, God gave them victory after victory after victory, and they got settled in the promised land, and then their leader, Joshua, died. And it says that under his leadership and the people that were leaders under him, as long as they were alive, the people kept on saying, God, we believe what you said, what you say is right, that's the way we're going to live. And God blessed them. But then we get to the next book after Joshua, and that's the book of Judges. These aren't judges like people we have today, or they're judges where they determine court cases. These are people God raised up to deliver his people when they got into trouble and to kind of give them some leadership and governance. But there were so many judges because God's people kept getting into trouble. Because they would serve God for a while, but then they begin to do their own thing. They began to worship other gods, and God is a loving heavenly father. Let them get into trouble, so they turned back to him. And so they would get into trouble. These other nations would harass them, sometimes conquer them. They'd call out to God, and God would raise up a judge to deliver them. And for a while, they'd do the right thing again, and then they'd start drifting off to doing the wrong thing. Story after story after story. And the last verse of Judges tells us how they got into trouble. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how we get into trouble. That's how the human race got into trouble. That's how we personally get into trouble is when we choose, I'm going to do what's right to me. I don't care what anybody else thinks, including God. Today, We're going to be focusing on God's righteousness because that's what the focus is in this teaching here. When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's talking about righteousness is defined by God. So what does it mean to seek or to hunger and thirst for God's righteousness? Now, I would be very quick to admit that if you don't have a relationship with God, don't care about a relationship with God, you probably don't care about that. I understand that, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're watching. God has a purpose for you. 
I'm praying he speaks to your heart. But for most of us, we have a relationship with God. We want a relationship with God. We want to please God. So this should be of great interest to us. What does it really mean to seek God's righteousness? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I'm going to give you three different things, and the last one's going to be really short. And we're going to take communion between number one and number two, just to kind of give you an idea here. The first one is this. Have a passionate desire to be righteous. Or to be right with God. I say the passionate desire because Jesus said to seek his righteousness. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that is that we would be right with God. But how can we be right with God? The first thing that might come to mind and the way some people live is, well, I'm just going to try my hardest to be as good as I can be and to do things right. And that's great. That's great. Unfortunately, it won't work. Now, I'm not saying it won't work as a good lifestyle. I'm just saying it won't work to get us right with God. Because God is all holy and all righteous. And any sin in our lives creates a barrier between us and him. And even if we try our best to do our best, to do what is right all the time, the rest of our lives, we're still going to mess up. And we messed up a whole lot in the back or a whole lot before. That's got to be dealt with. It's already a barrier between us and God. But we'd be quick to say, but I'm pretty good. I do pretty well, especially compared to, and we love the compared to game. Because we can find a whole lot of people that are worse than we are. I mean, look through history. I'm a whole lot better than Hitler was and Saddam Hussein and Pol Pot. And you can list a whole bunch of famous people from history. You can list a lot of people that live around you. I do a whole lot better than that person or this person. And that's kind of a way that our conscious kinds try to deal with this. And even though we don't want to accept it, the biblical truth is, though, that our righteousness no matter how good it might be, it's not good enough. In fact, when you compare it with a holy, righteous God, it's filthy. It's a famous passage in Isaiah 64, 6. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That translation is very polite, and I'm not going to actually tell you. Some of you would get mad at me if I told you what the original literally says there. Let me just say a little lightened up version. And if that stirs your thing, go study it or ask me about it later. I'm not going to say it publicly. Be sort of like say all of our righteousness is like a dirty diaper. That's not what it says in the original. They didn't have diapers. Something even worse than that. But he basically says no matter how hard we try, whatever righteousness we have compared to God's holiness is like a polluted garment. And we don't like that. doesn't seem fair. I do pretty good. I try pretty hard. And I thought, how can I illustrate this? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to look at a bottle of water. I don't usually have one up here because I usually do pretty good, although right now I'm getting a little dry. But if you think of a bottle of water and you think of poison, some clear poison that is strong enough that one drop in a bottle of water, would kill someone who just took a sip. 
Thank you all for not putting a drop in this bottle. Versus a bottle of water that's half full of water and half full of that poison. You can't tell. It's clear. Or maybe a bottle that looks like a bottle of water, but it's actually full of poison. Which of those bottles is going to kill you if you take of it? All of them. Because it doesn't matter the volume of the poison, it's deadly. And the same thing is true of sin. It doesn't matter the volume, the amount, the intensity, the horrificness. I don't even know if that's a word. If it isn't, let's put it in the dictionary. Of the sin, it's deadly to us in our relationship with God. So how, you say, pursuing God's righteousness, having a hunger and thirst, seeking How do we do that then? How can we be righteous? How can we do that? Well, the good news is God took care of it. I said one of the main passages we're going to look at, if you turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, I would love to dig into it. I could do a whole sermon series on this one passage, but we're going to go through it pretty quick and mention a couple things. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21 He says, but now the righteousness of God. There we go. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're trying to obtain. We want to be right with God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Just real quick, what he's saying is you got all these laws that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. They were to live by, but none of them could make them perfect in God's sight. And Paul says, now we know what the secret is. Now we know what God was leading up to. Now we know how to really be right with God. There was the law to help us, to guide us, to lead us, to point us to it. It didn't quite get us there. But now we know. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's the key. Whether you understand what that means or not, but there is the way that we have righteousness with God. There's how we can be right with God. It all comes down to Jesus Christ and what he did. And we put our faith in him. We believe in him and what he did and what God said about it. We go on. For there is no distinction. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we were just talking about. We all sin, some more than others. Some have done a really good job at it. But we've all sinned. Because that we fall short of God's glory and fall short of God's righteousness. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Boy, so much theology there. We've been redeemed from our sins Because of Jesus, it's by grace, which means God gives us what we don't deserve. And it is a gift. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, the fancy word saying, going to cover it over. Our sin. To be received by faith. There's that faith again. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, God was kind of overlooking it because he had a plan. People were trusting in him. It hadn't happened yet till Jesus came. But in times past, he kind of looked over that. People made their best effort and sought after him. But now the solutions come through Jesus Christ. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It says God is just, but he's also the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. What is just? What does it mean to be justified? It's important. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a theological term. You're going to learn a little theology today, but I won't make it too painful. What is justification? Justification is the biblical term for the fact that God will forgive us and declare us to be righteous in His sight. That even though we're sinners, that God will justify us. He will stand up and say, I forgive you. You're righteous. But there's a problem there. How can God do that and still be just? Because being just means you do what's right, what's fair, you punish wrong. I mean, how would we feel about a judge who got up in a court case of some horrific crime and say, I'm feeling really generous today, and because I want to show grace and mercy to this person, I just say, you're forgiven, you're righteous. And everybody would rightfully stand and say, you can't do that. That guy murdered somebody. That's how he raped somebody. That guy did, did ter- terroristic things. How can you do that? that? That judge would not be just. So how can God be just, but also justify us because of what Jesus did? You see, that's what Jesus' death on the cross was all about. Jesus, God himself, came to earth, lived the perfect life because he's God. He could do nothing else faced all the same stuff we did, and then died a death that he did not deserve. And that death on the cross paid the price for our sins. So God can justify us because Jesus took care of it. And that's why it's grace. We don't deserve it. He gave us what we don't deserve. And it's mercy. He doesn't give us what we do deserve, which is punishment for our sins. But it comes when we put our faith in Jesus and what he did for us. Romans 6.23 goes on and says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How did he pay for it? I mentioned it's the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus was righteous. He didn't have to try. He was. We are the unrighteous. But because he was willing to suffer on the cross, he did it so that we could be righteous, that he might bring us to God. Peter also says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I just say, once you get this in your head and you read the New Testament, you see this all over. And I'm not going to read all the verses. We'd be here all morning, but I want to read one more. This is my favorite one. That's why I left it till last. Second Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, talking about God, made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How can we be righteous with God? We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't do it by trying harder, by being good. 
It's only by putting our faith in Jesus and what he did upon the cross. And he was willing to come and die that our sins could be forgiven. That is what we commemorate when we take communion together. So we're going to do that now. I encourage you to take your elements. Before we do, I just want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and think for just a moment about what we just talked about. Jesus came and willingly died on the cross that your sins could be forgiven. And they are. And you've been justified. You've been declared not guilty if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. But before we take communion together, I want to ask, are you here today? Or maybe you're watching online and you've not done that. Maybe you've been struggling along just trying to do your best, thinking that was good enough. But today, because I've been praying about this, but today God's spoken to your heart. That isn't good enough, but I loved you so much I sent Jesus and he died for you. And before we take communion today, you'd say, you know what? I need Jesus as my savior. I need my sins forgiven. I want to put my faith in him and what he did, not in how good I can be. And today, I want to ask him to forgive me. I want to repent of my sins, and I want to surrender my life to Christ. And if that's you, would you just slip your hand up? Because I want to pray for you and with you before we take communion together. Anybody? see several hands. Yeah. I see some hands of people. I know they've made a commitment to Christ before. Maybe a new commitment today. And there may be some of you that are watching online that you fall in that category. So I'm just going to say kind of a sample prayer, although I mean it in my heart. I said it when I was 10 years old, and I mean it today too. And I'd encourage those of you that feel that way to say something similar for yourself. Father, I come to you and I recognize that I am a sinner. And because of that, no matter how good I try to do, I can't measure up to your holiness and righteousness but you love me so much that you took care of the problem through Jesus Christ. Today, I repent of my sins. I'm sorry for the sin that put the barrier between me and you. Please forgive me. And I ask that you would come through the presence of your Holy Spirit into my life. Save me from my sins. Help me to live for you. I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer and made your commitment to Christ, I would love to talk with you. If you're watching online, please communicate with me to talk to you about what you need to do to follow up on that in the relationship. We hold the elements in our hands. We have this wafer. Jesus gave bread to his disciples in the upper room. He says, take and eat of this, all of you. This represents my body, which will be broken for you. So we take this. They took it that night, not really fully understanding at all what was going on, but they would later. We take it understanding. This represents Jesus' body and it was broken. I, I just started doing this recently. I never, don't know why I never thought of it. Take that and just break it. Jesus was broken for you. Let's thank him. Lord, thank you so much that you took on a body, came to earth, knowing how horrifically your body would be treated, much less everything else you suffered, and you did it for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Take the bread. We have the cup with the juice, and it reminds us of the, ju- the, the, the cup that Jesus passed around to his disciples. He said, take each of you and drink from this. 
This represents my blood, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. The shedding of blood was kind of the Old Testament picture with all the sacrifices of a payment has to be made for sin. God dictated, God allowed for, God prescribed that that would be an animal and the blood would be shed, the life would be given to show that there's a cost to sin. And it pointed to Jesus. Thank God our forgiveness is assured because of what Jesus did. Let's thank him. Lord, again, we say thank you that you shed your blood, you gave your life on the cross that our sins could be forgiven. Thank you that we can stand here, sit here, whatever position we are in, and know that we are forgiven, not because we're trying hard, not because we're better than somebody else, but because Jesus died for my sins. Cleanse us afresh and anew, Lord. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's take together. Hallelujah. Just set your cups aside wherever it's most convenient for now. So, Jesus paid the price for our sins. Because of that, if we trust in him, our sins are forgiven. God has justified us. By the way, I like this. I learned this in Bible college. Justified simply meant it's just as if I'd never sinned. Declared not guilty. So what's really cool is now we can live however we want, right? Let's party. Jesus paid the price. No, we can't. There's another aspect to seeking God's righteousness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But let me just say that even though they wouldn't put it in those terms, there are people that are out there within the church who teach things similar to that. In the desire to emphasize grace, which should never be emphasized enough, God's grace is phenomenal. They lighten up on sin and the fact that we still need to do something about it, even though that God paid for it on the cross with Jesus. We still need to do something about that in our lives. It's all through the New Testament. It's all through Paul's writings, especially when you read Romans. Paul specifically says, you know, because of God's grace, can we just live however we want? He says, no. No. That's what we're going to talk about now because, you see, when we talk about what does it mean to seek or hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, it means to have a passionate desire to be righteous, but it also means to have a passionate desire to do what is right. To do what is right. And this is a vast majority of the teaching of the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings and the other letters that were written to the church, that there's this lifelong process of God's people seeking to please God and to live a life that makes him happy, that, that is according to his guidelines. And, and it's it, there's so much to it. There's a number of theological words that are used to describe it. We talk about living a godly life, a, a life like God. We talk about living a holy life. And, you know, God said, you know, be holy because I'm holy. And, and we think of holiness as being this list of do's and don'ts. And it's not. It's being I'm separated away from sin and separated to God. So there's certain things I'll be involved in and certain things I won't be involved in. Another word, a theological term is sanctification. That's the official theological word for it. Sanctification. What is Sanctification. According to the Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, it says it's a progressive work of God and believers that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ. So simply fly, it means now that we know Jesus, I'm going to live my life in a way with God's help. I'm going to get rid of the sin in my life and try to avoid it as much as I possibly can. And I need God's help to do that. 
and I'm going to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And that simply is what it means to have a passionate desire to do what is right. I asked those of you that wanted to follow along to Titus to turn to Titus 2. Again, this, 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 this teaching is all through Scripture, but this is the one passage I chose. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, what he means by that is it's available to everybody. Not everybody takes advantage of it. But because of God's grace, we already talked about that. Through Jesus, God worked it out. Everybody has the opportunity to be saved. Verse 12, it goes on. Not only did it bring salvation, but it also should train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He says, you know, because of God's grace, we can be saved from our sins. Thank you, Jesus. But also because God's been so good to us, we should have this desire that I want to live a life that's pleasing to him. That same grace that saves us should train us how to live our lives to be pleasing to him. Verse 13, while we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, which is another word for unrighteousness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, which is another word for righteousness. God's grace sent Jesus to die that our sins can be forgiven, we can be justified, but it should also train us and motivate us to want to leave our unrighteousness behind and pursue righteousness in every area of our life. We see so many pictures of this. Paul loves to paint pictures, and each one could be a deep Bible study. That's why I didn't put it up on the screen, because I don't want to get bogged down. In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about how it's like changing clothes. He says, now that you know Jesus and he saved you, you need to take off. And he's got this long list of these things we need to take off because they're dirty garments, character traits, actions, attitudes, these things that really have no part or should have no part in a follower of Jesus' life. Take it off. And he says, then we need to put on. And he talks about all the godly character traits. Read that, study that this week, Ephesians 4. In Colossians 3, 7, and First and Second John, Paul, and then John talks about how it's like changing paths. At one time, you were headed down this path, and it was littered with sin and disobedience, and now you've got to change, and you've got to take a different path. Jesus taught like that, too. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says it's like putting it to death. He says there's certain things you need to put death in your life, put to death in your life. I think what he's trying to emphasize here, there's certain things that are so serious. Yes, you know Jesus. Yes, you've been forgiven. But this can have such a negative effect on your life. you got to do whatever it takes to get it out. Put it to death. Put it to death. You know, Jesus said something similar when he was talking about lust in particular. He says, listen, if your eye causes you and leads you in, pluck it out. If your hand causes it, cut it off. I mean, he didn't mean that literally. It was an exaggeration, a hyperbole to, to make a point. He said, well, you need to do whatever you need to do to get the sin out of your life. First John 3, 3 says, when we have our hope, Jesus is our Lord, we will purify ourselves just like he's pure. Last one, there's the others. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks specifically that this is like changing masters. He said, you used to be a slave to sin. 
But now because of Jesus, he sets you free. Basically saying you can't survive on your own, so now you need to be a slave to righteousness. A slave to righteousness. I like this phrase. I didn't come up with it. Christians may not be sinless, but we should sin less. And I don't mean sin less than the person next to me, but I mean sin less than I did yesterday, last week, last month, last year. I I need to be growing in holiness and godliness and sanctification and Christ-likeness. That's what it means to seek and pursue and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not just to be righteous, but to become righteous and to do what is right in real life. How do I do that? That's a whole nother sermon and sermon series. How do I live a life pleasing to God? Let me give you my top five just real quick. You're going to have to flesh these out on your own and apply them. But there's nothing new. There's nothing deep. We just need to do it. Letter A, ask God for his help. You can't do it by yourself. That's been in these passages we read. We, we got to depend on God. We, we, we ask him for his help. B, depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons God puts his spirit within us when we know Jesus is our Savior, is to empower us. Jesus said to be witnesses. That's not just so you can say stuff to pe- point people to Jesus, but so you can live the life so that your life is a witness. That's a whole nother aspect of living a right life, not just for our own sake, but so it's a witness to the world around us. Depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. See, choose to do what is right. Choose. There's a part we have to play. God can be right there, and he is, saying, I'm going to help you. you got the power at your disposal, but if you don't take advantage of it, do something. You still choose to do the wrong things. Still choose to focus on the wrong things. Still choose to let stuff in your life that has been better to keep them out. You're going to fail. You have to choose. The pictures that I just repeat, I just share with you, you know, take off the uh, dirty clothes, put on the new clothes. That's a choice. You've got to choose to take those things off. Choose to put them on. You've got to choose the right path. You've got to choose all these different things. How do we do that? We, we go through life and we live in a world that's full of sin and unrighteousness and degradedness and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and granted, you know, you can't just shut yourself away. In fact, God doesn't want us to shut us away from the world. He wants us to go out into the world and be used by him to share with other people about Jesus. But we just do the best we can to do what God asks us to do. To do what is right. To avoid what is wrong. And that includes trying to keep things out of our lives that are going to pull us that way as much as possible or push us that way or draw us that way. I thought of a really good illustration of this, just a little part of it. I was I was thinking about our Super Bowl party later this afternoon, and this is not another commercial, but we'd love to have you there at 6 o'clock in the other building. We're going to have a great time of fellowship. But in the discussion about the Super Bowl party, the whole thing was, you know, there's nothing wrong with watching a football game. A lot of people are football. How many football fans? Just, just take a break. Good, we've got a lot of them. Nothing wrong with that. But what about the commercials? I mean, there's some cool commercials, some creative commercials, some fun commercials, but there's raunchy commercials. What about the halftime show? I mean, the halftime show might be good. It might be really raunchy. What, what about that? We're going we're gonna to have an event that's sponsored by the church so we can get there. And what about that stuff? And in case you've been wondering, just so you know, we already have a plan in place and a system work that all the commercials, to the best of our ability, are going to be muted out. Not just with sound, but with video. And the same thing for the halftime show. 
do something else during halftime. To the best of our ability, if you come, all you'll see up there is the game. That becomes sort of a picture for what we got to do in our lives. Enjoy life. God wants us to enjoy the goodness, the good parts of life. But do everything we can to keep those negative, sinful, evil influences from intruding in. You can't avoid them all. We live in a sinful world, but do the best we can. Choose to do what is right. D, this is key. Repent quickly when you fall. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. I'm not prophesying. I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying anybody making you. We're just human beings. But when you do, as soon as you know, oh God, don't, don't hide it. Don't, don't put up with it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't, just come to God and say, God, I am so sorry. I blew it. Forgive me. And the good news that Jesus' blood and his death on the cross covers that too. I've shared many times one of my favorite verses is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can God be just and still forgive us? Because Jesus paid the price. But we have to come. We have to confess. We have to repent. And then letter E, don't give up. Don't give up. Sometimes life gets so hard living for Jesus, trying to do the right thing. It's tough. And people give up. Don't give up. I don't care how bad you mess up. Don't give up. I don't care how hard it is. Don't give up. Don't give up. So we talk about what does it mean to seek or hunger and thirst for God's righteousness to have a passionate desire to be righteous, right, with God, to have a passionate desire to do what is right in a, in a lifestyle that pleases him and is a great testimony and witness to others. And the third and last one we're not going to dig deeply into, and that is to have a passionate desire to see right done. And as we look at our world and says, man, there is so much in this world that is wrong. To have a desire that that be made right, but I would also say to have a, a passionate hatred for all that is wrong. Paul says to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good, to allow the Holy Spirit to develop within us such a such an aversion through such a hatred for all that in this world that is not right, that it's wrong. Unfairness, injustice, unequality. Lying, cheating, stealing, dishonesty, lack of integrity, taking advantage of other people. Let's get some righteous anger. Stirred up within us, not to drive us to do anything wrong, but just to say, I desire God's righteousness to be manifested in this world. What can we do about it? Go back and watch last week's sermon. Because we talked about seeking God's kingdom. We talked a lot about what we can do, practically speaking, in our world as we live for Jesus, about making a difference in our world for what's right. So if you missed it last week, Go back and watch it. If you forgot what I said, go back and watch it. That means i got to go back and watch it too. But may God give us a, a hunger and a thirst for his righteousness to be manifested in the world. But can I tell you this, that as you do your part to live right, you're making a difference in your world and the people that are around you. Makes me long for what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.13, but according 
to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The good news is that we're only waiting. One day. One day all this stuff will be over with. God's kingdom will be established. We mentioned that last week. And it will be all righteousness. All the unrighteousness will be gone. We won't even have to struggle with it anymore ourselves. Thank you, Jesus. If you weren't here last week, you say, well, why is it taking so long? Because God's waiting for more people to come to know him. Let him use you to point people to Jesus. Let's all stand together. I want to point out one more truth, and then we're going to have a short time of prayer before we conclude our service. I mentioned the Beatitudes and what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Two things I want to point out here. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the righteous, for they will be satisfied. It's a good thing because none of us would ever be satisfied because none of us in ourselves can be righteous. But he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We blow it sometimes, we mess up, we do our best to not. But if we truly have a hunger and thirst and allow God to develop that within us for what is right and to do what is right and to be right with God and to share that with others, God will bring a satisfaction to our life. And that's the second thing I'm going to point out. I don't think he's just saying someday you'll be happy. Now granted, someday we'll be a lot happier because all the sin, death, sickness, sorrow, and disease is gone. But I believe that he's also saying if that's your heart, He'll help you to be satisfied in this life too. I'm going to invite our elders to come and our prayer team, our worship team is going to sing a song and we're just going to make ourselves available. If you would like us to pray with you about anything for yourself or for someone you care about, we're here. Come, we'll pray with you. And in just a couple of moments, one of us on the pastoral staff will close in prayer. But let's, you know, if you don't have a need, just meditate on what was said today and talk to God about it. See what he speaks to you about. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. As we close, would you join me in saying, God, stir within me a hunger and a thirst for that which is right. God, we just come to you right now. Thankful that Jesus died on the cross, that we can be right with you. Thank you again for your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that we are no longer condemned. No more guilt, no more shame as we trust in you. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here or watching online that's got some sin, they're kind of just letting that hang out in their, in, their, in their life, Lord God, that they'd get it taken care of right now so they can get rid of that guilt and shame they're feeling right now, Lord God. But we thank you that we can be filled with joy, the joy of our salvation. God, I pray that you put within our hearts a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that will empower us and encourage us to live a life that is pleasing to you. And I pray that as we do that, it will be a testimony to the world around us and people would see Jesus in us and we'd have the opportunity to point people to you. Father, we thank you for that. God, as we go out into our world this week, use us however you choose to. And God, we give you the glory and the honor in the praise, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 